discussing better, more vibrant pastures with the Downtown Business Grass Association. This week, in light of the release of the Downtown Vibrancy Strategy, we'll speak with Punita McBrien, Executive Director of the Downtown Business Association. We'll also get her take on the new $26.5 million pedway that Council endorsed this week in Stationlands. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Matt. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 134, where as we're recording this, Alberta has the nicest possible first dose vaccination number, 69.9%. Oh, so close. So close. I think this might be the generational divide between you and I (laughs) in that you said so close and I said nice. No, I'm just trying to keep it above board here, Troy. That's all. I knew where you were going with that. (laughs) Going very low with that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, on to the rapid fire before we get canceled. Edmonton's fire sale on suburban land for development may cool down after discussions began this week about charging developers for fire stations in new communities. While this has been a burning discussion in the past, council seems unlikely to scorch their relationship with developers, with the Urban Development Institute signaling it's warm to the idea. Some questions still remain, like funding of fixtures and public art, with councillors expected to give the motion the third degree when it returns to council. Residents in the Lewis Farms area who added improvements like flowers and benches to the green space near their homes have chalked up a win after the improvements were allowed to stay. Early last week, an upcoming removal action by city staff was brought to the attention of Ward Councillor Andrew Knack, who, in a bit of quick thinking, simply asked city staff to increase efficiency by removing the upgrades the next time the staff cut the grass. Residents are looking forward to continuing to enjoy their upgraded amenities for the next eight years. The 109th Street restaurant, now Prairie Fish and Chips, has started the massive rebranding process after dropping the Grandin moniker from their name. Broad calls to remove the Grandin name from neighborhoods, LRT stations, schools, and even restaurants have only grown in number as the discovered body count in residential schools continues to climb. We reached out to the restaurant to ask why, given the significant amount of work taken to rebrand, they didn't fix the other offensive thing about the restaurant, the serving of seafood. Unfortunately, we were unable to hear their response because the toxic, nauseating seafood tartar vinegar stench assaulting us with every breath they took simply overpowered all of our senses. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. Join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. The June 15th episode, for example, discusses how to lay the legal foundation when starting a business with guest Paul Barbo. Find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. A couple of downtown items came up this week that are both interesting and ridiculous to me for related but different reasons. Downtown, as longtime listeners will probably know, is where I live and work and spend 99% of my time. Uh, But it's important for other reasons, too. According to the city this week, uh, downtown is just 1% of Edmonton's area, but it accounts for 9% of its tax base and 13% 
of the city's construction value. And I bring up those stats in particular because the two items that came up this week are really about ensuring that they remain strong. So the first is the downtown vibrancy strategy. Urban Planning Committee endorsed that this week. They agreed to spend $5 million on these 20 actions that are supposed to help downtown build back better. And the second item is the station lands development. This is near the Epcor Tower, so a little bit north of where you're probably thinking in your head where downtown is. Uh, and the developer Qualico was at executive committee this week looking for money, $37 million actually, to help kickstart the next phase of development. And committee also endorsed that recommendation. And it includes, as you've probably heard, $26.5 million for a pedway. And oh boy, will we get into that. Now, Mac knows that I'm dane to talk about anything north of the river for any extended period of time. So he said, oh, we're just going to get a guest on to come join us for this episode. So I'm happy to finally welcome onto the podcast. We've wanted to have her for a while. Punita McBride, the executive director of the Downtown Business Association, newly since December 2020. Welcome, Punita. Welcome to podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So I think before we dig into some of the topics that Mac talked about, we have to address the critical questions that our listeners want to know. And, you know, it's a 50-50 with your role as the executive director of the DBA. But are you from St. Albert? (laughs) I am not. I live in Edmonton. Uh, originally from Grand Prairie, in fact, um, which is where I am right at this moment, which is kind of funny. But I lived downtown for about eight years when I first moved to Edmonton, and I currently live in Highlands. Given my commentary before the start of the show, I asked you to prep an answer for this question before you came on. But why is the Old Strathcona Business Association the best business association in Edmonton? (laughs) And could it be because it is south of the river? Uh, I think it is because you have the one and only Sheree Clausen as the executive director of your BIA. And I cannot say an ill word about Old Strathcona. I do take issue with your comment, but given that I've only been at the helm of the DBA for about six months, I'll see if I can maybe get you to change your mind by the end of my time in this job. But given your comments about North of the River, I feel like that's probably a tall order. I used to, my husband and I are very much north of the river people. Neither of us has ever lived south of the river. Um, And every time we used to cross the bridge, he used to say it was like, he felt like Frodo leaving the Shire. So I'll just say the feeling is mutual, Troy. (laughs) (laughs) So now that we've got the antagonistic section of the podcast out of the way, uh, Mac, do you have any real questions for our guest? Well, yes. Uh, First of all, I should preface this by saying that we know uh, this is not your strategy, Panita, it's not the DBA strategy, but you're a partner, the DBA is a partner in this downtown vibrancy strategy, and so we're going to ask you some questions about it. And the first thing I felt that we should ask is about the opioid crisis, which is not mentioned at all in the downtown vibrancy strategy, but you've been tweeting about this, you've been pretty active on this file, I would say, over the last month or so. You, you said on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that there's more than two overdose, overdose deaths per day, every single day on average happening downtown. So on the one hand, people are excited about this vibrancy strategy. On the other, we've got this horrible crisis that is really, really impacting downtown. And I guess my question is, if we have $5 million to spend, shouldn't we be spending it on the crisis? It's a very good question. And it's probably the thing I 
I'm struggling with the most. And I've talked about this with a bunch of our partners, this like balance between, you know, in this job needing to focus on positive momentum and vibrancy and patios being reopened and events and um, return to work and just like all of the optimism that I, that I do have and, and that I need to be putting out there. But then also the, the very stark reality that's sort of almost competing against that downtown right now. And then the opioid crisis is kind of at the center of that. I think the thing about the opioid crisis is obviously it's not in municipal jurisdiction. And that doesn't mean that there isn't work happening at the city level, like to whatever extent it can happen. It's like a whole big knotted ball of yarn of like intergovernmental relationship building and negotiation and, you know, partnering with and working with our social agencies like Boyle Street Community Services to whatever extent we can, trying to empower businesses uh, in whatever way we can, looking at equipping them with Narcan wherever possible um, and getting them trained. And many businesses are putting up their hands to do that kind of thing. So it's like the work is happening anyways. Your point, though, that like, could it, that solving that issue use this injection of money? Yes, probably. But it's a really weird issue where like the actual solutions sit within provincial jurisdiction. So, yeah. you know, when we sit down in our, with our colleagues at the lo- on the local economy team at the city, it's not exactly something that, um, you know, they're going to be in charge of tackling. We'll just say you're right that it's not a, a municipal jurisdiction. And I do appreciate that you've been talking about this because I, I often think that the head of a, a BIA is to be the cheerleader in charge of the businesses in that area. And it's really easy to just focus on, as you said, the positives, festivals and events, all that kind of stuff. So I appreciate your advocacy on that file. I do wonder, like you said, the opioid crisis, absolutely not municipal jurisdiction, but it should come as no surprise to you that we have a provincial government that's not just defunding crisis response, but actively acting in a way that is antagonistic and antithetical to solving this crisis. We have supervised injection sites, which we know help getting defunded and shut down. At what point does it become a moral imperative for other orders of government to say, okay, our provincial government isn't getting it done. We have two people every day dying in our downtown. We just have to start spending money to solve this. Honestly, I just, I don't understand enough about what the city can even do. Like, I think part of the problem is that they're in the middle of this like massive negotiation with the province to have supervised consumption services set up within the five new supportive housing complexes or communities that are going up. And so I don't know, like it's, it's a fair question, but I think it's a political question. And I just like, I've, I've worked with now and spoken with so many public servants at the city who, I mean, desperately want to try and solve this issue, but like so many things, it's sort of like caught up in the web of, um, of politics, which is so gross to say. And I don't like, I really don't want to throw anyone under the bus and saying that, but it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, Troy. That's for sure. Let's turn attention to the strategy itself then for a second. So uh, I want to ask you a little bit about how it came to be, but first I, I should mention there are four pillars to this downtown vibrancy strategy. Downtown as a home, downtown as an economic hub, 
downtown as a destination, and downtown as a safe, welcoming place. Now, Troy and I are both software developers, and we look at a lot of infrastructure diagrams. And the thing that jumped out to me is that downtown as a safe, welcoming place is really fundamental to those other three and probably should underlie them. And we always talk about education downtown and the thousands of students. It seems like that should be the fourth pillar, downtown as a school or something. But anyway, I wasn't involved in the roundtables. You were, Punita. Can you tell us a little bit about how the strategy came to be? Yeah, I think it was an interesting process because I think the best way to think about this strategy, it's not something that like city administration is putting forward and saying, here's all of the work that we're going to start doing for downtown. It was much more of a, okay, what is everyone already doing? Everyone who has a stake in downtown being a vibrant and, and prosperous and the place that we want it to be. What's already happening what do our colleagues and experts from across North America tell us is critical to solving some of our most pressing issues? And so they sort of started pulling all those pieces together. They, they created a first draft, and then they started sitting down with a whole range of stakeholders. So obviously us in the business community, um, Community League, all of our post-secondary institutions. I think the airport was even involved, Explore Edmonton, of course, um, Innovate Edmonton a whole bunch of the large employers downtown, and even people from the province. It was sort of a really wide assortment of people. And they sort of basically put it out there and said, okay, what are we missing? What fits? What doesn't? Where do you see your organization and your work aligning? What have you maybe learned from other cities that we could adopt here? Went through that process. They took it away again, took into account a ton of feedback from all the different stakeholders uh, that they connected with. And then, you know, it got to this, this final draft eventually. So it was, it was an iterative process. It was very much like there were, there are actions there now that were not there in the first draft that were added by groups like us or the community league, for example. And the reason it's kind of like, it's quite vague in some of the action and most of the actions actually, like the core actual ideas or the specific projects are not mentioned in the action because it's really much more of a framework to guide how they're going to get this funding out the door. Like, I don't think the city wants to primarily be spending this money themselves. They wanted to put together a framework that sort of guides how they're going to decide which projects and which partners, which initiatives they're going to fund, whether it's through a grant program or I don't know what that's going to look like yet. But it is sort of a very loose framework so that they can say, okay, yes, that person's project that they want to do is perfectly aligned with action one, eight, and 15. Perfect. Go do it. So I think when, you know, through that lens, I think it makes a lot of sense where it ended up and that it has sort of like the level of flexibility that it does, but enough detail that it gets all of us who are involved in this work pulling in the same direction, focusing on the same priorities, and thinking about where our work sort of overlaps with other people's work. I think that's really interesting because, you know, when I read the the report that accompanied this strategy, it, it felt a lot like they were looking for an excuse. And I say they, administration was looking for an excuse to spend some money on downtown. I, if I'm not mistaken, the recommendation wasn't even to request permission or approval for the $5 million. They basically said, we're going to do this. 
we have some cost efficiencies that we've found this year so far, and we're going to use five million of that to spend on this downtown strategy. So it's quite interesting to hear you say that, you know, the motivations seem to be how can we justify spending some money on some things downtown? I wouldn't say how would we justify spending some money on some things downtown. Okay, I put some words in your mouth there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah. I think it was very much a how can we focus and prioritize and organize the spending that we know needs to happen downtown. So let's talk a little bit about that spending. We've got this strategy. It's got 20 actions. And I'll, I'll say when I see a report with 20 actions, I always cringe a little bit because that's just begging for us to do like 12 of them and call it a day. <laughs> but I, I digress. We've got 20 actions that could cost anywhere from 7 to $28 million to completely fund. Um, quite the range as well. Very, very amenable to that do 12, the cheapest ones type thing. The city says they're in it for $5 million. And I know you sent out a tweet that said you were hoping for more. What kind of investment were you hoping to see from the city? It's tough to put an, a firm number on it. Like even the range. Yeah, it is funny that it's such a, a wide range. I mean, we and I know Jeff Chase and and the team that put this together were doing the same. We were looking at our colleagues across the country. Like I know um, Montreal's downtown revitalization fund that they announced I think it was April or May, uh, was $25 million. I mean, when they announced it, it was a lot more specific than this. It was like specific grant programs and incentives and a couple like uh, activation funds or whatever. So that's one number. $200 million was Calgary's number. But I mean, their plan was much more like, you know, our capital city downtown plan from like 2010. So, I mean, there's a really wide range out there of what cities are spending on downtown revitalization right now. I think, I mean, a bunch of us put our heads together around this and kind of looked at each of these actions and said, okay, well, how much do you really need to spend to truly do this, like to accomplish the, the goals that are kind of outlined here? And $25 million was the number that we came up with, which then funny enough, when the final numbers got applied to this, that was the top kind of the top end of the range that that city administration came up with as well. So yeah, I mean, it would have been amazing to have that level of funding for this plan. But it's also a tough case to make. Like there's so many stakeholders across the city who desperately need support right now. So many projects and infrastructure pieces that desperately need funding and and the city's stretched pretty thin. So I'm really conscious of that. And even like looking at my other BIA colleagues, like we're all facing similar challenges. Downtown though, um, of course, the reason this strategy exists for downtown is because of the reasons that Mac mentioned off the top, like the economic consequences of having a failing downtown are devastating for a city. So we can't let ourselves get to a point where we're like Calgary and we're looking at like a 30% office vacancy rate and, you know, whatever retail vacancy rate would be at that point, where then it's just like a spiral. I mean, $5 million is a start. It's enough that we can do a lot in the short term and a lot of really tangible things in the short term. And then when the rent subsidies and the wage subsidies end later this year and we start to really see the dust settle on the pandemic and see how many of our businesses have truly made it, how many new ones continue opening up, how many people truly return to work downtown again. Like in 2022, we'll have a much better sense of how dire the situation is. And then I'm hopeful at that point that if additional funding is needed, that there's an opportunity to get it. And it might not be from the city. Like there are, that's the other point that admin wanted to make is that there's other 
groups who have a real stake in the prosperity of downtown. And so, you know, that money might need to come from other places. I think it's a standard recommendation on any of these strategies that we advocate to other orders of government for funding. And sure enough, that's one of them in the strategy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what's what's in the strategy then and kind of ask about some of those actions. You mentioned that in some places it's quite vague and that certainly I think is a true statement. It struck me in reading the strategy that it's almost like it was written mainly by people who don't spend a lot of time downtown because I feel like a lot of the actions in there are you know, if you don't really understand what's going on, it sounds like a good thing to do. But if you spend some time there and you think about it, you're like, hang on a minute, maybe that doesn't make sense at all, actually. So, I mean, some examples, right? The strategy talks about grants or incentives to entice new retailers downtown. And I'm like, why don't we penalize the people that are actively working to harm vibrancy by not doing something with their properties? There's vacant commercial spaces that have been vacant on my street alone for years. And, and we can look, you know, a few blocks away at, say, the Mayfair, and somehow that landlord has managed to fill all of their commercial base multiple times. So I don't know, do we only need a carrot or maybe do we need a stick? And, and same kind of thing with, you know, the tactical urbanism. How do we use up parking lots and vacant land? Why are we talking about making it easier for people to do those things instead of making it harder for people to sit on that vacant land? Am I off base here or does it seem a little too rosy? some of the recommendations. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, you know, I'm as frustrated as anyone with some of the like truly negligent property owners downtown. There's a couple of examples where we've been having conversations right up to the city manager's office about how is it that certain property owners can leave their property in such a state that, yeah, it's your exact words, it actively harms downtown vibrancy. Like it actually is doing whatever the opposite is of attracting and enticing yeah. retailers and businesses downtown. So I'm with you 100% on that. Do and you want to name names? I do not want to name names. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who spends any amount of time downtown will, I'm sure, be familiar with probably the two properties that I'm thinking of. Um, but no, we're very interested in figuring out what that stick looks like. I mean, from our perspective, at least, because I mean, as a DBA, I think we represent a lot of highly invested, highly active, like community active businesses and business owners and residents for that matter. And so, yeah, it's really shitty when people who you would think have a stake in in things being awesome downtown seem to to be doing exactly the opposite. So very interested in figuring out what that stick looks like. I'm being told that the city is looking at options. But there's always this really tricky dance with the city and and property owners and developers, right? Like they never want to make that too contentious a relationship because they never want to risk, you know, scaring away a developer or making a developer feel unwelcome. So the cynic in me wonders if that's part of it, that they're just, you know, like afraid to to use a stick. I hope that's not the case, but yeah, no, point taken, Mac. Uh, instead of a stick though, what they end up doing is in the rezoning process and the development permit process, making exceptions to the rules that we've laid down and trying to win those developments. And then they sit there. And then when they are finally built, 
then we don't do anything about the fact that they remain empty. Like, I don't see where the city wins at any point in that process. And we're going to talk about bending over backwards to make developers happy when we got into the next topic. But <laughs> it's not just properties, I think, that is a problem, though, right? And, and, and this one might be a little more uncomfortable for you, but I think businesses themselves downtown also need to take more accountability. The strategy talks about you know, collective responsibility and some sort of like coordination of street sweeping and stuff. Like, how about the businesses clean up the sidewalk in front of their space themselves without needing to rely on downtown proud or somebody like me to take a picture and post it on Twitter or send it to 311 or to clear the snow in the wintertime? A lot of the items in the strategy to me read like, well, the businesses don't have any problem. It's that everyone else either doesn't come downtown or when they do come downtown, they don't know how to do it. Yeah, that's an interesting comment. I think that the vast majority of businesses are, especially right now, just like so beyond stretch thin. And the other thing that's interesting for the DBA, and this is such a tricky thing because I've been doing a lot of research about just into just learning about BIAs and studying downtowns across North America and, and how different BIAs do things and to what degree they're active, like operationally versus uh, more in an advocacy role. And I think it's safe to say that the DBA in the past has been mm -hmm. very much in that sort of like hands-off advocacy type role. And sort of the intention and the model is that all of our businesses are funding the BIA in order to pull resources, in order to sort of like reach this level of, you know, beautification and attractiveness and creating a district that is great to do business in. So I'm feeling right now, and, and I think my board agrees, we just did our strategic planning session on Saturday, coincidentally, right before our um, downtown vibrancy strategy went to council. And I think we all agree, like, this is something that our members all pay the levy for. It's something that clearly requires like a coordinated hands-on effort. So I think we need to step up our game. I think we're going to spend a lot more money in the future out of our budget on litter pickup, street sweeping, like whatever needs to be done where the businesses are just feeling like it's too much to keep up with or it's like for whatever reason, something that, that they believe their BIA needs to do. But it's, a, it's an interesting comment because there's definitely an imbalance there. Like some businesses are, are way more on top of it than others. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you talk about some of this coming from your budget. Just for our listeners, can you talk about how the DBA is funded? Yeah, for sure. So Edmonton has 13 BIAs. The way BIAs in Alberta work is that they're fully funded by the businesses in uh, the district. So just the tenants of buildings. And so basically what happens is our boundaries exist. We have a board of directors who come together, set a budget for the year. City Council approves that budget. And then city admin goes away and says, okay, based on the total assessed property value of all the businesses in this area, um, in order to cover that budget that was approved, every business is going to pay X percentage of their assessed uh, rented value for their business. I mean, essentially, you're saying you're basically just like another city council, but your constituency is only the tenants of the businesses. You still have to go through the budget process and you still have to raise a tax levy on your base, which is the tenants of the businesses. It leads me to wonder, though, when we get to budget time and the city budget has a lot of contention, does 
something like the BIA budget have a lot of contention? Are businesses really like trawling through those documents, writing letters to the editor, trying to, you know, shave, get to that zero, like Prosperity Edmonton like to talk about? Because I mean, that'll be raising business taxes in the area, no? Yeah, it's an additional levy that every business in a, in a BIA pays. But, you know, I don't think it's quite that contentious. Our budgets are, are quite small. Like, for example, in the DBA, each of our members pays 0.77% of their rented value as, a, as their BIA levy. There, It's definitely a big number for some businesses. And it's something that's, yeah, in the past, I think in some areas more than others, they'll, they'll have members who reach out and say, you know, what the hell am I paying for you for? I'm not paying this bill. This is bullshit. <laughs> what do you do for me? Like, that's for <laughs> sure. That's for sure a thing. It's not really like public in the way that like your analogy of a city council is. It's much more just like they'll, they'll email us or they'll email whoever the BIA liaison is at the city and say, what the hell is this? I'm not paying this. Um, but it's pretty few and far between. Like what we do, and especially the smaller BIAs, the work is so straightforward and tangible. Like it's things like getting all the, the flowers out in the, in the big planters on all the sidewalks, like doing litter pickup year round, doing the Christmas lights. Like, so for a smaller BIA, it's so operational and it's so straightforward. And then the marketing, of course, and that's where things get a little bit trickier in smaller BIAs where, you know, some businesses want to be promoted more than others or, or feel like they're not getting enough love on social media. So those are some of the things that smaller BIAs have to navigate. Whereas for us, it's like, our members are so diverse. Like it's everything from like Epcor and Stantec um, and then non-paying members like our nonprofit venues like the Windspear and Citadel. And then, you know, of course, all of our restaurants and bars and retailers and city center mall. And like, it's just, it's so diverse. So I think the only way we can be successful downtown is to really think about downtown as a whole and as an ecosystem and think about the big picture of ultimately what makes downtown great and vibrant and what are the biggest challenges we need to solve. Because as soon as we get into the weeds of like trying to solve problems for individual businesses, it gets really, really tough. And we're only a team of four and our total budget for the year is only about a million dollars. And that's including salaries. So that's a pretty nice segue talking about solving problems that affect everyone because everybody poops. And the strategy, Mac and I both noticed that it doesn't say anything at all about public toilets. But you did mention to committee this week that toilets are, in fact, very important. You said, quote, it was very clear that a lack of washrooms was one of the most immediately harmful impacts of the pandemic on downtown, end quote. And that's a quote from you, by the way. <laughs> I guess we'll put the question to you. How can downtown actually be vibrant? How can we achieve the outcomes of the strategy if people can't poop? <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up public washrooms. And yes, that is a quote from me. Um, it's not in the strategy because there is literally already a public washroom strategy uh, for the city. And that strategy is very much focused on our BIAs. So it was kind of redundant to include it here again. So what I'd really like to see happen on the public washroom front is to just look at that 2018 public washroom strategy. I think it's phase three that we, we need to be heading into now where we actually expand the number of public washrooms that are available. The city has, has done phases one and two. We know what it takes to make public washrooms viable and clean 
and successful and it requires them being staffed. Um, and yes, that is expensive, but that's what we now know. And, and again, I've been like doing my research across North America. There's a whole bunch of great case studies out there about different cities, what Winnipeg has done, what Seattle has done, what like South San Francisco has done. Everyone has come to the same conclusions. Like we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We know we need staffed, attended public washrooms. So it's not a separate issue from downtown vibrancy, but we don't need to like also put that here and find like new funding for it. There's an area of the city that handles that. There are people assigned to it. And I, I just am really looking forward to the next update um, for, for how that works moving forward. Well, and I'll say I hope that it becomes an election issue. I've heard some candidates talking about it already, but it would be great to see more of a push for, for public washrooms. We're going to move off the vibrancy strategy and ask you about the other thing that happened downtown, uh, Station Lines. But just very quickly before we do, I have to ask you about Action 12, which is position vibrancy as an ongoing goal. And I'm not making this up. One of the activities it suggests is, quote, supporting social media conversation. <laughs> is that really what we should be doing? Uh, you know, that's interesting that you picked up on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's an answer. I, I well, read it very closely. <laughs> uh, so that one came from city administration. I think one of the problems for downtown, at least through a lot of stakeholders' eyes, is that there's there tends to be this sort of like overwhelmingly negative narrative about downtown. Like there's those of us who like work and or live and are just like hang out and spend a lot of time downtown who do so and you know maybe like a fraction of the time that we're downtown we'll share stuff about the cool things here whereas the people who have really awful things to say about what downtown is like it feels like they're doing so constantly and passionately and it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy so I think the intention there is to be a lot more out there and proactive in telling the good stories about downtown and changing the narrative, the, the prevailing narrative on social media about downtown. But there's, there's kind of a lot wrapped up in that action. But yeah, that one bullet point is kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I will say as an example of that, when, you know, the light up bunnies were downtown and they were all over social media... That was a week where I heard nothing bad about downtown. There was no one talking about how grotesque a place it was. It was just, look at these cute bunnies and weird, <laughs> tall, white, inflatable guys. Yeah, that's true. Yep, exactly. Okay, on the topic of vibrancy, the other thing that we wanted to ask you about before we let you go is uh, Station Lands was at committee this week, and the developer there, Qualico, was looking for a bunch of money to kickstart development. So they built Epcourt Tower there in 2011, and nothing has happened for the last decade. A failed Galleria project came and went. And they wanted to kickstart development with some city money from the CRL. And one of the things that they wanted to fund is the Pedway that was originally proposed as part of that Galleria project. And Councillor Scott McKean, so-called Pedway critic, made the motion to approve it this week, including the Pedway. And he would not call it a Pedway. He <laughs> called it a, quote, underground LRT corridor extension, which is just bafflingly obtuse to me. But anyway, I'm curious to know, Punita, as someone who's been thinking about vibrancy, what do you think about spending $26.5 million on this pedway to nowhere? 
currently. Oh, I really wish she didn't ask me about this. Um, it's it's a really tough conversation to have. I um, I do not believe that an underground LRT tunnel extension that that is synonymous with revitalization and revitalization is what the CRL is for. However, the uh, councilor McKean and I talked about this that day. I chose not to even listen into council because I just couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around this debate. So I just stayed away from it, but we talked about it and I understand, you know, Qualico is a, a very invested member of the downtown business community the fact that they are so committed to and so enthusiastic about this project is commendable because so many people look at that particular chunk of land and just say, nope, no thanks. So the fact that they're committed to and interested in and like really, really optimistic about the future of that project is is worth supporting, in my opinion. And McKean's comment about it to me was that the other primary purpose of the CRL and the essential function of the CRL is that the tax uplift has to be there. Like anything we fund through the CRL, the whole point is that it's triggering investment that will then increase our tax base and make up for the money that is in that we're spending out of the CRL. So like by that definition and for that intention, if Qualico is saying, if you fund this LRT tunnel extension, we will get shovels in the ground this year. If that is truly the case, and that's where the negotiation gets us, I get it. I understand why Councillor McKean put forward the motion, why the committee felt that they should approve it. I I cannot speak for what it's like to sit in, in a council seat on something like this, but certainly from where I sit, I was raising an eyebrow from afar. <laughs> they felt it felt to me like they were being held hostage and I tweeted about this. I you know, I think Deputy City Manager Stephanie McCabe does great work, but it really felt like she was pushing the developer's agenda on this item. The council does not have to do whatever the developer wants them to do. They can absolutely vote no to these things. It's not city's the city's problem if they don't build and get shovels in the ground this year. It's been sitting there for a decade as it is. It's a really interesting thing that they did to me because as you said, the CRL is about revitalization and it's worse than just approving $26.5 million for this. They actually can't even do that unless they go back and amend the CRL plan, which requires provincial approval to designate the Pedway of all things (laughs) as a so-called catalyst project. (laughs) <laughs> that is the same definition we gave to Rogers Place and lots of other really you know, intense developments in our downtown. Like that is just insane to me that that's what it took. And I should point out for our listeners that the CRL is not free money, even though Councillor McKean basically made that you know, implication. He said something like, we don't have to go to the tax base and we don't have to borrow in order to spend money. That's what the CRL gives us. I'm not sure if he really understands how it works because it is both going to the tax base and borrowing. That is how the CRL works. Uh, anyway, I digress. There was a lot of problematic things in that meeting. So it's a good thing I listened and not you. Penny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to ask you, if the Pedway is a catalyst project, then basically anything I think is fair game. What, what are the catalyst projects you would like to see downtown? What's on your list? <laughs> 
good segue. I, I'll, t- I'll take this one uh, if we can stop talking about the Fedway and, and station lens. Um, <laughs> I, there's a ton of them. And it's funny, too, because I am really curious to see what I can convince the city to fund under our new downtown vibrancy strategy now that it's in place. So one project that I'm really excited about that I firmly believe is a catalyst project and feel free to tell me if you think I'm full of shit. But um, I want to do two alleyway transformations downtown. So I want to do the one south of Jasper between 103rd Street and 104th Street. So behind that 7-Eleven and Corso 32. And then I also want to do the one uh, just off Rice Howard Way, like that sort of connects uh, the Canada Permanent Building to the Trace Carnellis Building. And then it's sort of a T. So there's also the narrower part that runs between the McLeod Building and Craft. And So Mm -hmm. what these laneway transformations have done in cities that have done them, so Vancouver, for example, even the one that we're we're doing right now in Old Strathcona, um, where it's like really, that one has been an absolute, like that's a legacy project. The amount of work that's gone into that, the retailers like um, Sugar and Spice to have stepped up and opened a business in the laneway even before the revitalization and transformation work was really done. There's so much potential there. And it just, part of it too is like, there's just so much, there's so much you can do to change the character of the entire block if you rethink how we use alleyways and what they look like and feel like. And, and you know, think about like Barbrico and Corso 32 and Uccellino can have like patios behind their restaurants because we can actually turn that space mm. into usable, vibrant, well-lit space. So that's one that I think is absolutely a catalyst project. And um, that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping. Um, I don't know if it'll be funded through the downtown vibrancy strategy, but there's also some federal funding uh, we may be able to tap into for stuff like that. So hopefully that's the kind of stuff we'll be doing over the next year. I'm on board with that. I think an alleyway <laughs> would be great. I think the Alley of Light did uh, some some great things for 104th Street, so mm-hmm. on the other side of Jasper Avenue. And I imagine that would cost a heck of a lot less than $26.5 million. Oh, yes. <laughs> a, 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 yeah, yeah. A tiny fraction, in fact. <laughs> uh, so I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap up. But we do have another evergreen question that we have to ask all of our guests. And that's... You know, the perennial question in Edmonton, the Talus Dome. What do you think? Is it the greatest piece of public art ever? Is it, you know, garbage that we should throw in the river, like lime scooters? <laughs> what are your thoughts? <laughs> you know, when you're up close to it, I kind of love it. But the thing that irks me about it is it's not in a pedestrian heavy location. Like, when you're driving by it, it is not a great work of art. It's only cool when you're engaged. Like, it's an interactive piece of art. So I say, pick it up, move it downtown. We'll take it gladly um, and actually let people enjoy it the way that it probably should be enjoyed. It's shocking that the DBA is like, hey, give downtown more art. Give me, give me, give me all the art. You know, it's... We will take all the art. If anyone has any art they'd like to place somewhere, we'll take it. <laughs> Uh, before we wrap up, we'll give you a section, anything to plug, anything cool coming up, where people should follow you. Here's a couple seconds. Just say into the mic, whatever you want to say at this point in time. Uh, I don't have anything to plug in particular. Um, we hope to see everyone back downtown. We're getting updates from all of our large employers that, you know, as we move into stage three, they're even in stage two, they've already got people coming downtown on a voluntary basis. 
We're going to restart downtown live. We're going to do some lunchtime performances. So if people are coming into work downtown, um, you'll be able to catch shows on patios over your lunch hour. And I think in general, anyone who's been downtown, lives downtown, has probably already noticed uh, a serious uptick in good vibes downtown. So lots more of that to come. And it just might be the best summer ever. I <laughs> uh, didn't know we were dog whistling and speaking municipally today. Um, uh, that's all we have time for. And what a good closer. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us. I know we went a little long, but it was some fascinating stuff. So it's you're always welcome back when uh, you want to talk about uh, defecting to the South Side. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for having me. This is a blast. Hopefully I didn't say anything that I regret too much when I listen to it. <laughs> this podcast, much like the Downtown Business Association, is funded by our tenants. In this case, the tenant is the ECF. Hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Ponkink and produced by Lisa Pruden, the well-endowed podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we said we were doing this every week. We're already over time, but got to give you your a weekly election rundown. This week, Oshery plans to develop Rossdale. How? When no one has for decades? Who knows? But he's got a bow tie. He'll figure it out. Also, Nickel sucks. That is the rundown. <laughs> Concise to the point. That's how it should be. Ah, oh, perfect. Um, I'm sure the news about Nickel will not be extended ad nauseum in the next week when his sanction hearing begins. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Panita. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.